0: This morning, in this second session, I want to trace a little of the history that has led to the terrible apostasy that is within the Adventist Church. I don't know how many of you have read this book, With Cloak and Dagger. Anyone read it? That is a powerful book, written by Brother Hilton Myers. I believe that every sincere Adventist should read this book. This not only shows how the apostasy happened, he shows who's responsible for the apostasy, and he shows why it is that um, we've allowed that apostasy to come in and what the actual apostasy is that has come into our church. I want to trace this situation and the talk... This, this talk is Adventist, Not Evangelical. We are Seventh-day Adventists. We're not evangelicals. But let's look at the history. In just after the middle of the 1950s, the president of the East Pennsylvania Conference Elder Unruh. In those days there were two conferences in Pennsylvania, today there is only one. Elder Unruh listened to a broadcast by Dr. Barnhouse. Many of you know the name Dr. Barnhouse very well. He was then the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He was the editor of Eternity magazine, a Protestant magazine of an evangelical thrust. And he was a noted radio broadcaster on religious topics. So he was a busy man. Donald Barnhouse was to become a central figure in the apostasy that has since taken place in the Adventist church. On this day, Elder Runru, the Seventh-day Adventist president of the East Pennsylvania Conference, listened to his broadcast and apparently was impressed by it, and wrote a note to Dr Barnhouse saying that he had much appreciated his presentation and um, thanking him for what he had said. As subsequent events were to show, Dr. Barnhouse was absolutely surprised to get a letter from a Seventh-day Adventist minister supporting what he had said on the radio. It wasn't long after this that a young doctoral student, (coughs) what was his name? Walter Martin, had decided to write his doctoral thesis on the so called Christian cults. But in fairness, he decided that rather than just read what people had said about the various churches, he should interview them. And he became, he centered his research on the Seventh day Adventist church. And he went to Dr. Barnhouse, who was then a very famous um, man in evangelical Protestantism. And he asked for some help from Barnhouse, and Barnhouse remembered the letter he had received from T.E. Unruh, the Seventh-day Adventist conference president. And he said, well, I received a favorable letter from this man. Let me give him a telephone call and see if he will help us in getting a group of representative Seventh-day Adventists together so they can answer questions concerning the beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, that was a very reasonable situation, very fair. Rather than read what other people had said about Adventists, we'll go straight to the Adventists themselves. There was nothing <coughs> wrong at all with that approach. In fact, it was a kind of approach that most of us would appreciate. Unruh was very enthusiastic when Barnhouse called him. And he quickly got in touch with the then General Conference President... Elder Reuben Figure. And Figure was impressed by the opportunity. It seemed like a good opportunity to witness our faith to those not of our faith. And very quickly a group was brought together. The interesting thing is, in the end it ended up with three men. There were four originally, four main participants. Others participated, but... Three main participants in the end. The interesting thing is that each one originated from a different continent. There was Dr. Leroy Froome, an American. There was Elder Roy Allen Anderson, an Australian. And there was Elder W.E. Reed, a Welshman. They were the three men that made the major contributions in response to the questions. Elder F.D. Nicol was part of the group initially. He was then the editor of the Adventist Review and Sabbath Herald, as it then was called. But he quickly was eased out of the situation. And it was Froome, Anderson and Reed... Now, I believe that the church thought they had an unparalleled opportunity to witness to these evangelicals, Barnhouse and Martin. And after careful study, Barnhouse and Martin placed before these men a wide range of questions about the beliefs of Seventh-day Adventists. And they were given the opportunity to dialogue it and to check it through and to write written responses. That also was good. Not off the top of the head, not just quick answers, but considered careful answers. So far, so good. Oh, if only Adventism had truly been represented. By the way, eventually the manuscript was shared with about 200 other Adventist pastors and leaders for their review. Now, you'd think we'd get a very good document, wouldn't you? I remember meeting Russell at the university. We were studying at Sydney University at the time. We were were about 23, something like that at the time. And Russ saying... You know, Pastor Naden on Sabbath said something that troubled me. He was attending the Rurunga Church, that's the headquarter church for the South Pacific Division. Pastor Naden was then the secretary of the Australasian Division. Later he became the president of the Australasian Division. And before the start of the sermon, I don't know whether he preached or not now, I've forgotten, Russell would probably remember. But I wasn't there, so I don't know. But anyway, Pastor Naden got up and said, something wonderful has happened. The evangelicals are now saying that we're not a cult. We're part of the true body of Jesus Christ. Now, why would that trouble Russell? As soon as he told me, I was terribly troubled. <coughs> Surely the Seventh-day Adventist Church is authentically part of the body of Christ. That wasn't the problem. The problem was... That apostates were saying it. Does that give you a problem? Do you see the problem? I don't think for one moment that Adventism is a cult. Of course. that would be—that That is an insult to the great truth that God has given to us. But I'd rather be called a cult by apostates. Than be called faithful by apostates. Yes. Yes. You get the problem of being. And both of us wondered what. This meant. Something didn't seem right. Listen, when you are preaching this message, the leaders of other churches are not going to stand up and say how great it is. That's just not going to happen. Or oh, because, after all, some of their ladies are going to see what a wonderful message it is and they're going to join the Adventist church, and they do. A little time after this, the book questions on Doctrine, or the full title Seventh day Adventist Answer Questions on Doctrine, was published. It was published and it was made available at a very cheap price so that as many Seventh day Adventists as possible would get it. And hundreds of thousands of that book were distributed around the world. By this time, I certainly was 23, may have been even 24. And I enthusiastically got hold of the book. At last, here is a book with some good, authentic... I put no connection with this to what my brother had said had been made as a statement in the Wurundjeri Church. I knew no connection whatsoever at that time. And um, I got hold of my copy of the book and enthusiastically started reading it. But after I was reading for a while, I became concerned. Now I was only 23 or 24 and I felt that they had really not well represented Ellen White at all. I felt that there was a playing down of the prophetic utterances. And then I was alarmed when I read what it said about the Atonement. Those two things particularly alarmed me. By the way, I didn't get so alarmed over the nature of Christ. That might surprise you. But in that initial thrust, that wasn't the thing that took hold of me. It was the way they treated Ellen White and the prophetic gift and the way they treated the Atonement. And I remember going to my minister, Pastor George Best. And I said, I've got some concerns about this book. And he said, what kind of concerns? I said, I don't think that book should ever have been printed. He was sort of alarmed when this young fellow in his church said that to him. But that was my honest evaluation. And I told him, he said, well, I haven't studied it too much myself. Perhaps i better have a look at it. He was a good man, good pastor. He's now retired, of course, for several years. But... um, Again, I still hadn't put everything together. You know, the the jigsaw puzzle took a while to form, at least in my experience. Just later I noticed what was said on the nature of Christ. And I knew this wasn't what I was taught. I knew what was said on the atonement wasn't what I believed. Eternity magazine by the way I'm, I'm going to read some of the material in this book this is the wet your appetite if you don't have the book not really it's, it's important to what I have to say here um, the, um, in Eternity September 15 1956 mm-hmm. it had um, th- uh, this to say Yes, Eternity Magazine. And this is what Dr. Barnhouse wrote. This is September 15, 1956. (coughs) This is in this evangelical magazine of which Barnhouse was the editor. I should like to say that we are delighted to do justice to a much maligned group of sincere believers and in our minds and hearts take them out of a group of utter heretics to acknowledge them as redeemed brethren and members of the body of Christ. He was talking about 7th Day Adventists. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? We're no longer going to put them in the malign group. These are brethren that we embrace as part of the body of Christ. That's the kind of statement that no doubt Pastor Naden was referring to when he made this statement. Now, this is very interesting because in June of 1950, just over six years before, in the same magazine, this is what Dr. Barnhouse had to write. Someone had given him, by the way, a copy of Steps to Christ to read. And in Eternity magazine, he commented upon that book. How many of you have read Steps to Christ? The question is, to many, how many times have you read it? Um, how many have found that a marvellous blessing? to Oh, well, I mean, I don't need... That's a, a conversation. But this is what Dr Barnhouse had written six years earlier about Steps to Christ. Under the heading, How to Read Religious Books... He claimed that, the read, that reading such a book with its half-truths and satanic error was akin to a worm on a hook. The first bite is all worm, the second bite is all hook. That is the way the devil works. That's what he wrote about Steps to, to Christ. And then he referred to its author, Mrs. E.G. White, as the founder of a cult. Now, he'd written that in June of 1950. In August, or so rather September of 1956, he's taking us out of this malign group of and says that we're sincere believers, acknowledging that we're redeemed brethren. That's the one saved, always saved, inference there, of course. And members of the body of Christ. What made the difference? What made the difference was the answer that our brethren gave to the questions to Barnhouse and Martin. Don't think that these apostate principles that were presented did not raise a storm in the Adventist church. That great warrior, Dr. B.G. Wilkerson, oh I wish I'd known him. But he was dead before I reached the United States. He was one of my predecessors as president of Columbia Union College. Or I could go into the college library and see the (coughs) painting of B.G. Wilkinson. I would have loved to have known it. You know, if you can get hold of any of his books, they're worth reading. And I noticed there's three of his books here. There's the Authorised Bible Vindicate, and if it's not on the table, I've got one or two copies there. That's a defence of the King James Bible from the terrible attack upon this Bible. And I want to tell you, Dr Wilkinson is a historian. Now, some people claim that he saw a Jesuit behind every bush. Whether that was true or not, I do not know. But one thing is certain, that, that, that I wish there were more people are a little alert to the Catholic influence that has flooded into our church. Um, his my book, Truth Triumphant, is the classic in the field. Showing the history of how God preserved this faith. I tell you, if you want to get your heart stirred, read that book.
1: It is a parallel to
0: great controversy. Oh, uh, It is, and uh, it, it shows how people had to be persecuted. When you go and hear of what happened to the faithful in India under the Inquisitions, it's frightening. I mean, in fact, it's almost impossible to read without breaking down into tears of what they did to these faithful Sabbath keepers.
1: I know a lady, by the way, who uh, got hold of an old copy of that book, Truth Triumphant, and
0: and she thought there was no other copy around, and she copied the whole book out by hand Mm. in order to preserve it before she let the person have it back who loaned it her. Well, it's, of course, it's only in recent times it's been reprinted. You see, that's the, these classics, thank the Lord for these um, of Autumn that are uh, reprinting some of these old classics that we didn't even know existed in some cases. There's a, uh, a terrible account in there
1: of how that the, the Welsh Church refused to uh, accept Augustine. Mm.
0: Well, you know, you realize the Welsh refused to accept Sunday sacredness till the 12th century. The Scottish did the same thing. England collapsed in the 7th century. (laughs) You remember at the Council of Whitby up there in York, Shear? But even so, you think, That proves beyond any doubt the apostles didn't change the Sabbath when they had to take for centuries to force these people into marriage and so on to do these kind of things. Well, um, Wilkinson, this but he was getting old now. This is 1956-57. But Wilkinson, after reading the manuscript of questions on doctrine, said these words, It is as a dagger aimed at the heart of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Questions on doctor. A dagger aimed at the heart of the church. I believe if he had, he had lived much longer, he would have been lost his credentials too. But you remember, one of the great stalwarts of the Adventist Church lost his credentials over his opposition. And that was M.L. Andreessen. Uh, M.L. Andreessen fought this. Now, as you know, Andreessen is a Dane, or was a Dane. In fact, I felt um, privileged to pass by the city where he was born and reared there in Denmark last year. He'd come to America. He had become president of Union College. And at the time he was um, lost his credentials, he was a field secretary of the General Conference. He was no low-level individual. But he was a man that didn't care about his position. He was going to stand up and preach his truth. You remember that his books on the sanctuary are the great books on the sanctuary message. Christ in his... No, no, not Christ in his sanctuary. The sanctuary Sanctuary service. service. The sanctuary service. I don't know, we may have a couple of copies here of Andreessen. You know, men that stand like this are always worth reading because you know they're men of true conviction. And um, I tell you here, you've got the greatest opportunity with all these various books that are here to keep informed. In between the meetings, you don't have to... Wait for meetings alone. You can continue your study. But he wrote a series of letters to the church. These were letters deeply burdened by the apostasy that was coming into the church. And this is what M.L. Andreessen wrote. This is from Letters to the Church's number three, his third letter. They're also in there, yes. Listen, there's so much good material here that... um, there's no reason not to be fed daily. We have reached a crisis in this denomination when leaders are attempting to enforce false, enforce false doctrines and threaten those who object. Now, of course, he was accused of attacking the leaders. But was he speaking the truth? Of course he was. The whole program is unbelievable. Men are now attempting to remove the foundation of many generations and think they can succeed. If we did not have the spirit of prophecy, we would not know of the departure from sound doctrine which is now threatening us. And the coming of the Amiga which will decimate our ranks and cause grievous wounds. Now what did he say was going to cause the Amiga and the decimation of our ranks and serious grievous wounds? Was it the truth? the error. The present situation has been clearly outlined. We are nearing the kind of climax. and for his pains, he was removed from the seventh-day Adventist ministry. He lost his credentials, and they are only returned to him posthumously, Whatever good that is. It's much use having credentials when you're dead. They don't serve much of a purpose but i think the brethren felt a little guilty his and books i said still speak, though. i'm sorry his books oh still his still books speak that's right he being dead yet speaketh mm-hmm. now as we say in adventism challenged mm-hmm. and reason stood when champions were few very few. Young men like Russell and myself still were not in situation to understand fully what was taking place. We knew something wasn't going right. but And I tell you, brethren and sisters, we have a heritage to stand like these faithful did back there 30, 40 years ago. We can't give up. If Andreessen and a few others hadn't stood back then, I wonder if we'd have been where we are today. We didn't have warriors and and watchmen to give us a clear signal. Maybe we wouldn't be where we are. And I just see myself as part of all that group who has the heritage that these faithful leaders of the past have had. They didn't... I mean, it was grievous. You know, Andreessen lost... Not only his credentials, he lost his sustentation. And when he was put out unceremoniously, he didn't have a dollar to bless himself with. And he had to go to the unemployment agency. Can you imagine that? And of course, he had to fill out some forms. Where did he work? What, you know, and so on, and all that. And they called him in. They wanted to know. And they said, absolutely not. The Seventh-day Adventist Church owes it to you. And our church was forced to pay him his sustentation by the government. And ever since that, of course, that has prevail no matter what happens. Same
1: thing happened to my father. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's happened to me personally, not that I'm here to talk about myself. But you see, the South Pacific Division doesn't have the same policy as the North American Division. And I got a nice note to tell me that my 30 years of denominational service did not provide me with any sustentation seeing that I had left the ministry before retiring age. But the lord's going to bless i 'm not too worried about it i 'm um, not concerned, but that it 's a sad thing not because it's me or Andreessen or your father but it's it's a sad thing because it's dealing with principles that our church should not be caught up in um Page 10 and 11 of this book, Ellen White has this to say. It comes from series B, number 2, page 54 and 55. Books of a new order will be written. Do you think QOD was a book of a new order? Of course. A system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced. Has that been introduced into the church? Nothing would be allowed to stand in the way of the new movement. Is that happening? Ellen White predicted it all. We should not be surprised. I know when a pastor there in Indiana stood up against what's happening in the ceremony, he was told point blank, if you can't go along with this, you should leave the ministry, because he's since been put out of the ministry. And this is not a young pastor either, a man of 47 years of age. And he was told, he was complaining about the celebration, the training of our pastors there at Andrews, University in the celebration form of worship. And the head of the church ministries department of the seminary said, Listen, whatever you say, this is the way we are going. They're determined. Nothing is to stand in the way, it says. And that's their determination. All right, what are some of the doctrines that were denied? All right, let's come to something. First, on page 13 of this, book. this book's so invaluable. It's, this is um, speaking of, of the second meeting with the General Conference conferees. Barnhouse wrote this after their second meeting. It was perceived that the Adventists were strenuously denying certain doctrinal positions which had previously been attributed to them. For instance, They stated that they repudiated absolutely the thought that seventh-day Sabbath-keeping was a basis for salvation. And later in his report that Sabbath-keeping is in any way a means of salvation. Well, of course you can say that. Sabbath-keeping isn't the basis of salvation, but I want to tell you, brethren, it's a condition of salvation. The true basis of salvation is Christ. We understand that. His sacrifice and his ministry. But he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the creator. He is the one who is our redeemer. And the Sabbath is totally bound up with the great acts of creation and salvation by Jesus Christ. And you know it's putting the the situation aside when you say... It has, it's not a means of salvation but you've got to go a step further and say but it is an absolute unmovable condition of salvation and the final generation we know will all be Sabbath keepers that is the final generation of the redeemed will all be Sabbath keepers it cannot be any other way but you see the subtle way it was denied let me come over to the next page this is Barnhouse again They, that's referring to these GC conferees, do not believe, as some of their earlier teachers taught, that Jesus' atoning work was not complete on Calvary, but instead that he was still carrying on a second ministry work since 1844. This idea is absolutely repudiated. They believe that since his ascension, Christ has been ministering the benefits of the atonement which he completed on Calvary. You see, the Word of God makes it clear in the 16th chapter of Leviticus that the atonement was not completed until the high priest on the day of atonement ministered the blood of the sacrifice of the Lord's goat on and before the mercy seat in the second apartment, in the Holy of Holies of the heavenly sanctuary. That's clear from Scripture. We believe that Christ's sacrifice was an atoning sacrifice, but we do not believe the atonement was complete on the cross. That atonement is completed in the heavenly sanctuary, as Jesus, our heavenly high priest, ministers the blood of his atonement for every repentant and faithful Christian. But these men are repudiating that. And they're saying the atonement was completed on Calvary. And to get around it so that Adventists wouldn't get too excited about what was said. They said, but Christ is now ministering the benefits of that completed atonement in the second department of the heavenly sanctuary. And the evangelicals were ready to accept that kind of a compromise. I want to tell you, you cannot compromise with truth, brethren and sisters. Amen. Now I want you to notice how few men are changing the direction of this church. You know, it's the hand on the tiller that changes the direction of the boat. There may be huge numbers, but one man is changing the set of the tiller, of the rudder, and the boat starts to change direction. And here we have a tiny, minuscule group of men putting their hand on the tiller and they're changing the direction. And everyone on the boat is expected to go in the direction. Now it's about time that some of us got down to that tiller and started getting the direction back. Now keep in mind that once the boat has gone off in the wrong direction not only do you have to straighten it out you've got to bring it back. That's not easy. You lose a lot of time and energy. But that's what God expects us to do. Well, let's hold another one. That the majority of SDAs had always held that the incarnate Christ had a nature which was sinless, holy, and perfect. Is that true? you just got to read Dr. Larson's book. The Word Made Flesh to realize that without fail the pioneers of this church... All agreed that Christ took sinful human nature. Fallen human nature. But this is saying the majority of SDAs have always held that the incarnate Christ had a nature which was sinless, holy and perfect. That's a downright fabrication. While the view of a minority, the lunatic fringe. That's where I stand. is repugnant to us. We have nothing to fear for the future except we forget the way the Lord has led. I want to tell you, we better know and His teachings in our past history. Listen, what this is reminding us is how some led us away from the truth. But by the grace of God, the men and women here are not interested in a partial Adventism. They're interested in the great truth that God has given to us. Life Sketches, page 63, tells us that the atonement is completed in the Most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Many statements, but that's one reference for you to look up life sketches. One of the chapters in Adventism Challenge was entitled The Retirement of Pastor Robert Pearson. I don't know how many of you met Pastor Pearson, but to me, he was a giant in Israel. a man who really was an Adventist. I got to know him very well. I counted him as a personal friend. When I went to Columbia Union College, (coughs) of course it's located just one mile from where the General Conference was then located to Camer Park. And I had the privilege of sitting on some committees with him and seeing the earnest approaches. I had the privilege in 1973 of attending some of the meetings of the annual council where the call for true righteousness by faith was given. In 1974, I was a delegate to the annual council, held in Loma Linda that year. I want to tell you that's one of the highlight experiences of my life. When Elder Pearson led out in that communion at the end. It's the only time I've ever seen a communion at an annual council. The Lord really was present, and the Holy Spirit was present. You could sense it. After his retirement, I spoke to him many times. Ate in his home a couple of times. Always attended our meetings when they were held in the Fletcher area. Always stood firm on what we had preached. Preached. The last time I spent with him was the first of November nineteen was it eighty eight or nine? Anyway, it was just two and a half months before his death. We spent the whole day together. We'd planted. He wanted to talk about his burden for self supporting work. And um, he was staying at the home of an Indian physician, who I also knew, and so we spent the day there together, in that home. And um, it was 1988, because almost everyone from the General Conference was up at Minneapolis at the, quote, celebration of the centenary centenary of the 1888 Mm -hmm. Minneapolis General Conference. But while I was there, Pastor Pearson called up Elder Winston Clark, who was the associate and the assistant to Elder Wilson, former president of the Far Eastern Division. And I heard his side of the conversation. And his burden with Pastor Clark was the way they were bulldozing the self-supporting institutions. Now he said it kindly Elder Pearson never spoke with um, a acrimonious voice or words and it's a good example to all of us. He said, I spoke with Brad, that was obviously Elder Bradford and I t- suggested to him not to hold a meeting or to make any decisions unless there were representatives of the self-supporting institutions present and then rather wistfully he said but I guess the brethren didn't see any light in my suggestion that was a kind way of saying it now he was burdened about all the restrictions they were trying to place on self-supporting to sh- this is the way you prove your loyalty I haven't found a self-supporting institution that privately thinks that it's a a reasonable set of criteria. Some are more open like I am than others. And then we went around to uh, another Indian home and there we had supper together. I didn't realise it would be the last time I'd see Elder Pearson alive. The next time I'd see him would be in a coffin. As you know, the pressures got extraordinarily hard on Pastor Pearson. And eventually, in the annual council of 1978, he announced that he would retire as General Conference President January of 1979. I was burdened when I heard it. But this is part of the speech that he made and it was reported in the Adventist Review of October 26, 1978. I want you to hear this man of God and his burden for what was happening in the church. This was our General Conference President at the time. Already, brethren and sisters, there are subtle forces that are beginning to stir Regrettably, there are those in the church who belittle the inspiration of the total Bible, who scorn the first 11 chapters of Genesis, who question the spirit of prophecy's short chronology of the age of the earth, and who subtly and not so subtly attack the spirit of prophecy. Now, is he being critical? Is he? He's expressing his burden as General Conference President. There are some who point to the reformers and contemporary theologians as a source of the norm for Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. There are those who allegedly are tired of the hackneyed phrases of Adventism. There are those who wish to forget the standards of the church we love. There are those who covet and would court the favor of the evangelicals, who would throw off the mantle of a peculiar people, and those who would go the way of the secular materialistic world. Fellow, here's his appeal fellow leaders, beloved brethren and sisters, don't let it happen. I want to take seriously that appeal. Elder Pearson, though dead, still speaketh. These were the warriors that tried to stop this terrible apostasy in our church. I appeal to Andrews University, to the seminary, to Loma Linda University. Don't let it happen. He knew where the problems were, didn't he? Was he being critical? No. We are not Seventh-day Adventists. Sorry, we are not Seventh-day Anglicans. Nor Seventh-day Lutherans. We are Seventh-day Adventists. Oh, when I read that at the time, my heart just beat. What a clear statement he was making. Now, it's for these same principles that some of our friends and brethren, sisters here from Norwich are facing (coughs) disfellowship. I believe, I have to say, fellow leaders, beloved brethren, sisters... Don't let this happen. He said, this is God's last church with God's last message. And then he gives a little rationale. In the fourth generation, there is much machinery. (coughs) The number of administrators increases, while the number of workers at the grassroots level becomes proportionately less. Great church councils are held to define doctrine. More schools, universities and seminaries are established. These go to the world for accreditation and tend to become secularised. Was he being critical? Or was he just expressing the deep heart burden concern as a General conference president and as a true Christian? There's a re-examination of positions and modernising of methods. Attention is given to contemporary culture with an interest in the arts, music, architecture and literature. Sorry, Paul. The movement seems to become relevant to contemporary society by becoming involved in popular causes. Services become formal. The group enjoys complete acceptance by the world. The sect has become a church. <coughs> They're not my words. They're the words of our late, former General Conference President, Elder Robert Pearson. You see why this, these books are so. They enshrine. It helps us to understand, brethren and sisters. And Russell and I, probably more than anyone, have been close to the history of this thing. And um, we've written those books so that people need not be deceived. They might understand why the confusion. There are people here that have been Adventists for five or less years. You haven't been through this. You come into it somewhere in the middle of it. And it's hard to know why we are where we are and what's happened and what's taken place. And that's what I'm trying to share here. So that when we take up the issue of the Norwich situation, all of us will at least have a little background. What we're dealing with. The ecumenical development in our church is dramatic. So many of our men are in the ministerial fraternal. Do you know what the ministerial fraternal is? That's in a town or village or city or region where the ministers of every faith meet regularly in what is called the ministerial fraternal. They drink tea, eat biscuits and fellowship and so on, or whatever they do. Do you want to know an easy way to lose your vision for winning Baptists? Join the ministerial fraternal and become friends with the Baptist minister in the church, in the, in the town, or maybe the Anglican. Maybe the Methodist, whoever it happens to be. And then you're a little nervous. Only this year, one of our students, an Australian, was doing a practicum out in Utah. And they received the name of a woman um, that had written into Voice of Prophecy, or one of those, uh, might have been, it is written, programs, to visit. Well, they went twice to visit her and she wasn't home. The pastor is part of the ministerial fraternal. And so, and the pastor gets most of the newsletters of the churches in the area. And he got the Baptist newsletter and he noticed that this woman had just been baptised into the Baptist church and was being welcomed, you know, as a new member of the church in the the paper. So he went to Robert and he said, listen, I don't think it's appropriate for me to go and visit this woman. Um, It might... Cause a little tension with the Baptist minister. So, why don't you see if you can find her? That's what happens. Or our student who made such a wonderful impact. If any of you know Robert Granger, what a man. I had the privilege, by the way, of teaching his father, who's a minister in Australia but not in the same direction. But when he was at Avondale, a lovely man, but he didn't understand what his son understands. It's an interesting situation. And uh, uh, one of the members of the church died, and the, the wife particularly wanted Robert to carry out the funeral. But of course he wanted to keep with the pastor, and, that. and the pastor said, yes, that's good, but he said... Um, Well, he said, it will be, it's important. I'm going to invite one of the pastors or one of the other churches to give the benediction. Here we like to, um, in these kind of things, share a little bit. Robert gave, so he told me, the kind of sermon that we should give on the state of the dead, on the sleeping in the grave, waiting the great return of Jesus and so on. That's how we preach a funeral sermon because it's the truth. It's the word of God. At the end, the Episcopal minister. As you know, that's only the American parallel of the Anglican minister. Happened to be a woman, by the way. Stood up and Robert said she prayed everything contrary to what he had preached. He said, I'm convinced she sat there, took notes on what I said, and made sure that in her benedictic prayer, she had him in heaven. She Everything. Now, can you imagine that? That's what happens with these fraternals. I'm, I'm telling you something of recent history. In the last two or three months, these things happened. Listen, we cannot. We're there to to um, evangelize the ministers. We're to work for them, but it's another thing coming and banding together with them. Our ministers have no place in those fraternities. These fraternals must not be there, and Adventists are becoming quite the ringleaders in the Easter sunrise services. In fact, would you believe it, I'm Paul Harvey News. How many of you know what I mean by Paul Harvey News? Paul Harvey is probably the most respected news broadcaster in America, and he has his own inimitable, he's now well in his 70s, um, style of presenting news, and it's syndicated all over America. And um, and he's very favourable to Seventh-day Adventists. Every now and again he'll, on his news broadcast, he'll mention something about Seventh-day Adventists or on our health program or that. Now, I understand his wife was or is a Seventh-day Adventist. But Paul Harvey, this day, he was commenting on the fact that the Seventh-day Adventist pastor of the church in Phoenix, Arizona, had led the sunrise service there in that city. That was that was broadcast all over the United States of America. Listen, we don't believe in those pagan sunrise services, do we? No way. I hope we don't. Come right out of Babylonian paganism. That's where they come from. Exchange of pulpits. <clears throat> Sounds good. The Baptist minister said... Um, why didn't you come and preach one Sunday night for me? Oh, I'd be delighted to. He looks at you, waiting for your response. Oh, uh, well, maybe we can arrange for you to preach in my church one Sabbath morning. Oh, that's happening. Now there are many faithful ministers that would not be invited to that. <coughs> I want you to know there's no place for those that do not believe in love and this present truth to preach in a Seventh-day Adventist pulpit. And that's not being negative. It's saying that pulpit is dedicated to the preaching of the end-time message. Do we agree with that? I hope so. And then there are those non-distinctive sermons. Oh, they're the most dangerous. If the pastor comes out in a barrage of error, the people can take hold of that and start to <coughs> make a little bit of a, a reaction to it. But if the pastor never preaches any error, but neither does he ever preach present truth, homilies, nice statements that you would hear in any ecumenical church, oh, yes, Word of God is open. Maybe in some cases the spirit of prophecy. But the distinctive pillars of our faith. That's why Ellen White in early early writing 61 says there are many precious truths in the Word of God but it is what? Present Present truth that the flock needs now. That's the issue. And she even indicates that Satan's going to gain an advantage if we preach precious truth but ignore present truth. She said for here Satan will do everything to gain an advantage. Oh, I tell you when I remember first reading that or noticing it, it electrified me. I said, I can't preach this kind of pabulum to the people even if it's not error. We've got to preach present truth. And then of course she showed what it should especially be. The 2,300 days, the sanctuary the law of God, faith of Jesus. They're perfectly, she says, designed to show us our past history. To confirm us in the present and to lead us to the glorious future. They're not the exact words, but that's the intent of it. Number five, a loss of the identification of the papacy. Remember the court record statement. One of our leaders that our identification of the Roman Catholic Church um, as, uh, as the um, antichrist and so on, we had consigned to what? Trash. The religious trash heap. Well, I haven't done that. I don't know about you. You can't change God's word. I was
1: surprised when I read... Um
0: well if you don't know who it is you don't know who the man of righteousness is <laughs> and then number six Over the last few general conferences, we have invited leaders of other churches to come to give their greetings and to be official observers at our general conference session. As you know, this last general conference session there in Indianapolis was no exception. And we had the (coughs) Patriarch of the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, you know, rather some very interesting groups and various ones. But I think the one that most shocked us was Thomas Murphy. Now, there was quite a reaction to that. And you remember that a brother from Tennessee sent out, I think it was 350,000 copies of his little um, leaflet called um, USA in Prophecy. All over, and that hit the headlines of the newspaper, the Indianapolis Star, on both Friday and on Sabbath. I imagine you're all very familiar with some of the statements that were made
1: oh.
0: that um, the leaflet was trashed, that was an official statement made by the church, that of the 750,000 Seventh day Adventists in North America, no more than a thousand held to these anti-Catholic um, sentiments now. A thousand. Now it's not anti-Catholic, of course. That was a bad way to put it. But we still believe that the Roman Catholic Church is the Antichrist of prophecy. And I remember not long after that going to Ron Spears' camp meeting and I asked how many there believed that the Roman Catholic Church And I suppose the time I asked for it, there were about 800 people there, and I said, well, there's only about 200 others all over America, apparently, if there's only 1,000 that believe this. I think that was a little low somehow. So I wrote my letter of protest. It's all I can do. But I think I've got to deliver my soul. But then I learned that the Archdiocese of Indianapolis (coughs) had an official newspaper and they had commented on some of these issues. So I got my secretary to write to the Indianapolis Criterion. That's the name of the official newspaper of the Archdiocese, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese. I thought I'd better get it direct. And they graciously sent me a photostat of the article anti-Catholic tract distributed in Indianapolis. Now, this is not written by the secular press. This is written by the editor. John Fink is the editor of the Indianapolis Archdiocese, Roman Catholic Archdiocese newspaper, The Criterion. I want to read it to you. An anti-Catholic pamphlet called United States in Prophecy was mailed to some Indianapolis households while the International Seventh-day Adventist Conference was being held in the Hoosier Dome in Indianapolis July 6-14. to However, the main body of the Adventists distanced itself from the booklet, an official spokesman calling it trash. They took hold of that pretty quickly, didn't they? The track was published and distributed by the Adventist lay worker affiliate of Tennessee. In reality, it was one man that did it, but that's the organisation that he called it. I've met him since then. And he told me why he did it. He said he he wanted, the first reason was he wanted to take the opportunity to tell these people the the great message that we had. The second, he wanted to to see whether our leaders were sincere in their stance. He said, I got my answer. I'm not saying that was a good motive. First was a good motive. In it, the Catholic Church is called a pagan religion, and the Pope is referred to as the beast of the Bible's book of Revelation. It says that all those who refuse to keep Saturday as the Sabbath are being disobedient to the will of God. Is that true? If we refuse, the Seventh day Adventists observe Saturday as their Sabbath. Now, that's the last part of it that just absolutely rocked me. The Seventh-day Adventists have a history of anti-Catholicism, like many other Protestant religions in the United States during the 18th and 19th centuries. However, in recent years, the main body of that church has moved away from anti-Catholic position, an anti-Catholic position. That sounds bad enough. Listen to the next sentence. The new position of cooperation with the Catholic Church, did you get it? The new position of what? With the Catholic Church was exemplified by the invitation from the Seventh-day Adventists to the Vatican to send an official observer to the conference. The Vatican's Pontifical Council for Promoting Christians United. Then appointed Thomas Murphy. I'm not even going to use the word beforehand. Director of the Office of Ecumenism. Now, why do you think they chose... They're leading ecumenical man to be there. Do you think it's because the Catholics are considering joining the Adventist Church? Mm-hmm. you think that's in their mind? What do you think's in their mind?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: To bring us into their fold. Oh, dear, oh, dear. To be the observer... Murphy was then invited to and did speak to the conference on behalf of the Catholic Church. That's their write-up. You know, I like to try and get down to the the original sources. It tells you something. But can you imagine that someone, and you can have your ideas of who it could have been. I don't know for sure who it was. But someone apparently actually contacted the Vatican and asked them to appoint an official observer from the Roman Catholic Church that would be able to give greetings. Of course, as you know, he prayed a liturgical prayer from the Roman Catholic liturgy for the success of the conference. That was nice, wasn't it? Isn't that amazing? Now, I've got to tell you something. Whoever he or they were, who made that decision, I believe that they should be removed from the Adventist ministry. And I believe that such a person's membership should be totally in question, not just his ordination. How can we do such a thing? Now, I agree that possibly they might send incognito observers. That's a different matter. We can't control that. We do have our sessions open. We're not going to ask everyone to prove their Seventh-day Adventist when they come into the session. But that's a whole different thing by being invited to be an official. And you walk there in all your regalia up the front. and Official observers. Or brethren, talk about the sighing, crying ones that Ellen White talks about there in the fifth volume of the Testaments in the chapter on the seal of God. If we're not sighing and crying over these abominations that be done in the church. While I was back in Australia, a lady gave me a copy of the Appeal for Mission brochure. And she said, what do you think you see in this? I saw nothing that I knew would alarm me. But then I didn't know what I was supposed to look for. And then she pointed me to the fact that ADRA was an affiliate of the ACFOA, the Australian Council for Overseas Aid. That sounds pretty innocuous, doesn't it? That ADRA in Australia was associated with the Australian Council for Overseas Aid. I still didn't see anything to alarm me, but I knew that there was something there to concern me, the way the woman praised it. And so then she gave me another sheet of paper. Now it was really more than one sheet, it was an article. And there was one of the leading New Age women. She'd given up a great career in television and that to be one of the leaders in the New Age in Australia. And she had her magazines and she had her television programs and radio programs and so on. And here in our special issue of Life and Health, the Australian issue of Life and Health, combined with the signs of the times, they had a combined issue. Here was a great write-up on this woman. And then it became obvious that the Australian Council for Overseas Age was the great organisation of the new age. I didn't know anything about it. And here's ADRA affiliated with it. And here we are talking about this wonderful woman that gave up her television career to help people in her talkback programmes on radio and answering questions. and And then... Our own magazines listed the stations around Australia where you could actually hear this woman. I tell you, my heart sinks. You think that you could not be battered anymore. You think you'd be steeled against these things. But they keep coming at us. And we've got to expect that, brothers and sisters. might says, apostasy shall increase until the close of probation. What is ADRA? ADRA? is the Adventist um, Reli- Development and Relief Association. That took the place of SOARs, which was the... Um, this is our great organisation worldwide to get all the aid out to the world. Is that
1: where our in-gathering
0: funds go? Well, at least in Australia, that's what they were saying. I don't know whether it does over here. I want to tell you, this woman mm-hmm. said that was the last time she'd go <coughs> in-gathering. But that doesn't mean it's in, in Britain it's associated with this organisation. I don't know that. And don't just take it for granted that it is. We've got to be fair. But in Australia it is, according to the brochure. Of course, that was to help people give more because it was part of this great... So I've been away from Australia now for over 20 years and so I don't keep up as well as I could with all the things that are happening in all the organisations... So people have to keep me informed when I go back to Australia. Now you might ask, after saying all this, why do I believe that this is still God's remnant church? If I think it's got so bad, and I do, why do I still believe it's God's remnant church? Well, firstly, I look at the parallels of history. When Israel and Judah were deep in apostasy, God still called them his people. When Elijah claimed he was the only one, God said, No. Seven thousand that are not bowed need to bow. Well, I know there's a lot more than 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal in the Seventh-day Adventist church. We can do a lot better than 7,000. I don't know what the figure is, only God knows it, but certainly I'm convinced way beyond 7,000. Brothers and sisters, this church is the only depository of God's truth. Where else do you find it? You might say, but no one's preaching it. Oh, yes, they are. Not Many. But if you were to go to any other church, there is no truth. When you look at the everlasting gospel, this is the only church that is preaching every facet or has the ability to preach it. Now, if we are ignorant or if we are delinquent, it's not because we haven't got the light. We've got so much material here that we could be converted on this a thousand times over and still have more to study. So much... We have. God has come at it from every possible angle. I believe that um, these apostles are going to get worse. God said they would. But what I notice in all the statements, he never says leave the church. When I read the fifth volume of the testimonies and where I read that... um, Sin of every kind will be in the church. She doesn't say that's the time to leave. Now, the indications are that we will, that many will be cast out. I believe that we have myriads of hirelings in our church false shepherds, false pastors, false prophets, whatever you want to call them. But I also believe we're right at the end of time when the angels are going to do that separating. And when they separate, they're not going to make any mistakes. They're not going to put a goat over with a sheep or a sheep over with the goats. If any of you have been to the Middle East, you know what it means when it's talking about separating the sheep and the goats. When you see the herds together, I didn't understand it until I was in Jordan and in Israel down there near Jericho. And you see these young boys and girls with the sheep and goats together in one so that's what was happening in Jesus' day. And he said now one day the sheep are going to be over here and the goats are going to be over here. They're going to be quite separate folds. today they're mixed up together the wheat and the tares the dross and the gold, different symbology but same meaning as I read in that um, statement that I read earlier this church has done great things for me and I believe I have a responsibility to do whatever I can for, my, for this church, maybe little but I've got to do what I can. And for some of the very sincere members that are entrapped and not knowing what's going on. We go to places sometimes and we find people who think they're the only ones in the world. Not so common now, but it was a few years ago. They were shocked and surprised and blessed to realize there are others. I was preaching with the Koreans and one Korean man started to tell me the problems that the Koreans were having and I said well that's exactly the same that the white church is having he had not the slightest idea that the same problems were in our churches that were in the Korean churches but it, it, Satan is using the same technique to destroy everyone it's, it's just uh, too sir, it's a successful a formula well this afternoon I want to come down very home, get close to this issue of the, Nor- the Norwich Church. All of us have got something to do in relationship to this, if we're willing. More at stake than the membership of a number of our beloved friends... I believe there's much at stake in what's going to happen in the future here in Britain and beyond Britain, because these issues that are done in one become a parallel to do in others. We've got to do everything we can to stop these things happening. Amen. And remember this, in the early Christian church, it started with excommunication. Then it went to, by the time of Augustine, he strongly um, spoke against any kind of um, death penalty, but he spoke very strongly in favour of imprisonment of heretics. But you know, it didn't stop at imprisonment. In the end, it meant execution, martyrdom. Don't think that this isn't the first step towards those other areas. Except the end of time is going to go much faster than it ever did in the dark and middle ages. And we've got to do everything to hold back Satan's disgusting efforts.
1: Amen.
0: I just want to finish on this note. I mentioned this yesterday. Baptism, Eucharist, and ministry. On the back, the statement published here marks a major advance in the ecumenical journey. The journey's not over yet, as you can understand. The result of a 50 year process of study and consultation, this text on baptism, Eucharist, and ministry represents a theological convergence that has been achieved through decades of dialogue under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's a little mistake there, but it is under the guidance of a spirit. Over 100 theologians met in Lima, Peru in January 1982. And recommended unanimously to transmit this agreement, agreed statement, the Lima text, for the common study and official response of the churches. They represented virtually all the major church traditions, Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Old Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican, Reformed Methodist, United, Disciples, Baptists, Adventists and Pentecostal. This is their official document. Now we had a theologian there from Andrews University, Dr. Raoul Dederer. I have not spoken to him on this, but Dr. Minier has. And Dr. Minier said that he didn't really agree with. He told Dr. Dedron. Told him he didn't really agree with it, but these were his friends, and he felt uh, he didn't feel right not to sign the document. Now, if we got that kind of person representing us. By the way, this was the man that called up the Indiana conference and complained that I was going to preach in Indiana. Do you want a word or two of what this document says? i would mark one or two spots here somewhere. Churches are increasingly recognising one another's baptism as the one baptism in Christ when Jesus Christ has been confessed as Lord by the candidate or, in the case of infant baptism, when confession has been made by the church, parents, guardians, God, parents and congregation, and affirmed later by personal faith and commitment. Are you ready to accept infant baptism because the guardians, the parents, the church and that? and then later it will be confirmed. Does it make a difference? Now, it is true, this document does make it clear that it's much more obvious adult immersion than sprinkling, but we do not count out the possibility that there was infant baptism in apostolic times. That's what the document says. Well, I don't care whether there was baptism. There's plenty of other heresies in apostolic times, The Eucharist. It has acquired many names, for example, the Lord's Supper, the Breaking of Bread, the Holy Communion, the Divine Liturgy, the Mass. Its celebration continues as a central act of the Church's worship. Do you see the ma- Mass as the same as the Lord's Supper that we? It sounds as if it's the same thing in the document, doesn't it? Now, this is a follow-up book. Churches respond to BEM. By the grace of God, there's no Seventh-day Adventist response in here. I hope it never comes. I'm not here to say it never will. But there are many churches that have responded. What do you think the whole purpose is of this? It's so that if you've been baptised in one church no matter what it believes then that or whether it's infant or adult now you may be unfamiliar with it but and i wish i had it here but the sketches from the life of paul you know that book Mm. there ellen white comments on acts chapter 19 when the ephesians the 12 ephesians Ephesian believers were rebaptized by Paul. Remember, they said they'd been baptized by John, and he said, "Well, were you baptized in the Holy Spirit? We've not so much as heard that there be a Holy Ghost." And Paul rebaptized them, um, and uh, in the uh, name of Jesus Christ, too, of course. Now they had been. Baptize, they had been baptized by John, they'd been faithful to what they knew, but now there was new light coming to them. And Ellen White, in commenting upon that, said that those who come from other churches, though they have been sincerely baptized, should be rebaptized because of the new light that the Adventist Church brings to them. Just Look get hold of sketches from the life of Paul and the commentary on chapter 19 of Acts not the chapter 19 of the book I don't know what the chapter is but it's the commentary on Acts chapter 19 now you won't find that in Acts of the Apostles but it is in sketches from the life of Paul and ever since that I have never accepted a person in unprofessional faith Really. Well we do here in England. Well we do in America and in Australia, but I said I have never, and I've never had a problem. Listen, when you properly ground a person in this message, and you show and they now believe fully in the spirit of prophecy, and you show them that statement, there's never been a hesitation. I've never had to argue, I've never had to debate. There's been no question. They're ready to be rebaptized. They're glad to be re- rebaptized into the full truth of the Advent faith. Is that statement also in the Bible commentary? Of the Seventh Advent Bible Commentary. I am not certain of that. I do not know, but it certainly is in Sketches from the Life of Paul, and brethren. If if we accept this, we could never think of rebaptizing anyone, even if they were sprinkled at infancy. We would accept the Catholic baptism when they became Adventists, if that ever happened anymore. We are not ecumenical. We can't accept that, brethren. But I believe all this is a heritage of what happened back nearly four decades ago. And it's just a natural growth. Once you apostatize in one thing, another, and another, and another. I want us to pray for God's church, that somehow the eyes of the faithful, both ministers, leaders, and laity, will be open. I think we've reached that stage, haven't we? That needs to happen. Well, I tell you, one of the advantages of travelling all over the world is people add to your... In, you know, it's lay people like you that give me materials to, that, that share. The Lord's been very good like that. Most of the material I haven't found originally. Some of it, yes, but not all of it. In fact, not the majority of it. We're all working together to try and help each other in these issues. I believe we should kneel together. Amen. And Mick, would you pray for us, That and pray for our church, and pray for each one, that we will rise above these terrible heresies.
1: Merciful, loving, heavenly Father, our wonderful and all-powerful Jehovah God. O Lord, we bow before you this morning. We bow before you, dear God, in awesome reverence. O Lord, we love this church. gracious God. We love our blessed Saviour who died for us. Amen. We love this Advent message, O oh Lord. Amen. Our hearts Amen. have been lifted by these wonderful messages. But oh, dear God, we are so burned oh. because we love our sweet brothers and sisters. Oh Lord, who are going through a fearful time. Lord, our hearts are with you. Oh Lord, you know their hearts. You know how they are faithful to Jesus in spite of all this, this terrible thing that's going on. Oh gracious God, please by your infinite and wonderful grace. Oh Lord, please give them an extra helping of the strength of Jesus to be able to endure this terrible thing. Amen. Lord, give us the inspiration of Jesus to be a compassionate and powerful encouragement to them in this painful time. Lord, we share in their suffering. We hope that we can encourage them, Lord. Last but not least, our gracious God, we pray for those who indeed in this terrible blow, Lord, they're deceived into thinking that what they're doing is right. Lord, we can but pray for them some of them do not realise what they're doing. And even those who do, Lord, they're so deceived. Help them, Lord. Save them from their own folly. But Lord, as you have shown us, you've convicted us, that in all this, it is Christ who suffers the most. He breaks the heart of Jesus. And because we love Christ, that upsets us too. Oh, please hear our prayers, O oh, gracious God. Lord, this is your church and it is wonderful you've saved us from the world. We pray now as we close that we may move on and strengthen the unity and the wonderful loving power of the risen Jesus. And that no matter what despicable things the devil uses, we know, Lord, that he cannot prevent Jesus from from finishing what he knows he's going to finish. Oh, Lord, please come and take us home. Bring this world to an end, Lord. That we can be taken away from this terrible cesspool. Thank you, Lord. You are truly wonderful. Thank God for Jesus Christ. This is my prayer this morning. Amen. Amen. Amen.